Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we pick up a new book that we find particularly interesting. And for me, that usually means ones on Africa. And then we talk to the author about it. This time, the book is The Last Storytellers, Tales from the Heart of Morocco. And the author is Richard Hamilton, an old colleague of mine from back in the BBC World Service. His book captures a tradition that goes back centuries at a time when it seems to be on its way out. Here's the interview. Well, joining me here in uh, London is Richard Hamilton. He's the author of The Last Storytellers, Tales from the Heart of Morocco. Hello. Hi there. This is, um, it, 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 it's a book about a dying tradition, isn't it? That's it's, right. Um, it's a cl- I mean, the bulk of the book is actually the collection of stories that you've been able to pick up from Morocco. But the whole idea behind the book is that there is this tradition that is obviously quite central, not just to Morocco, but to quite a few other uh, societies. And as they get pro- progressively more modern, you start to lose this. And, and the idea behind the book for you was to try and gather it all together as much as possible before this just disappeared. That's exactly right. What happened was I I went to Morocco with the BBC. I was posted there in 2006 and I uh, fairly soon in in that experience I I went to Marrakesh and I came across the storytellers who are quite well known um, anyway. It wasn't as if I discovered them but I hadn't realised just quite how um, urgently uh, what a priority it was to save these stories because people had They'd been around probably for as long as the city's been around, which is um, maybe a thousand years. So obviously they'd they'd been around a long time, and and yet there were fewer and fewer of them. There were some studies done in the 1970s that said there were 18 storytellers in the main square, the Jamar al-Fanar. And um, by the time I was there in 2006, there were two performing in the square. So that was quite a shocking uh, sort of decrease in numbers. Um, and it was really that sense of urgency that I thought, I've got to record these stories for posterity before we lose them, because 90% of them have never been written down. They're just sort of oral, traditional stories that families might tell, or the, in this case, the storytellers would pass them from one generation to another. So that's really the background. And But it was only really when I started researching it that I realised just how urgent it was to try and preserve these stories, because um, after I left... Morocco for the, uh, my posting in the BBC in 2007, um, I went back about four or five times to carry on uh, collecting material, collecting stories. And um, it was, each time there were fewer and fewer uh, storytellers around, and the, the two that were, had been in the square weren't there anymore. One was very ill. Uh, the other had decided that it didn't make any money anymore. And, um, so it, and then there were others who had retired and... Uh, I basically had to track them down amidst the sort of labyrinthine um, Mm -hmm. streets of the Medina. So that was sort of, in a way, part of the enjoyment of the book, although it was very hard and difficult and frustrating, and Morocco's not an easy place to work. Mm -hmm. Um, It was great um, collecting these stories, but I realised that, you know, it was more and more important to to save them as, as time went on. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Before we continue too much with the book, let's talk about you. Now, 
we're old colleagues. We worked together in the BBC World Service for well over a decade. You're still there. But can you give us a little bit more about your own background and obviously how it led up to you being in Morocco and discovering, well, as you say, you weren't the only one to discover it, no. but, but coming across this tradition and, and deciding to write this book and get them down for posterity? Yeah, um, well, I won't go too far back into sort of my early childhood <laughs> or anything, but I did originally train as a lawyer and I wasn't... Oh, I never knew that. <laughs> you did... keep that quiet. I kept that quiet at the BBC. I didn't want to be too clever, you know, when people <laughs> argued about libel and stuff. But anyway, I did train as a solicitor and I was a bit of a reluctant lawyer. I didn't really enjoy it and I found it quite dry and it was all to do with money and sort of VAT clauses and contracts and things like that. And... Um, I actually got laid off at the, the firm I was working for and um, my parents, I was quite young, I was early 20s, my parents said, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to go travelling in Africa. And my mother said, that's not a very good idea, you should be looking to get another job as a lawyer. And then I said, oh, never mind, you know, my dad approves. I went and saw my dad, you know, in the next room or whatever and, and he said, well, I think it's a stupid idea, you shouldn't go there. And basically I ignored them and I went off for three months around Africa on one of those overland buses full of Aussies and Kiwis. And um, it was a great trip and it opened my eyes to Africa. And after that, I just got this sort of wanderlust and sort of travel fever and frenzy and I just sort of fell in love with Africa. And um, that was really the, the key to then getting into journalism. I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. Uh, I'd apply to journalism school and... Uh, you know, I wanted to work abroad. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And I was lucky enough that after a few years of working in the World Service, I managed to get a position as a stringer for the African service. And having badgered them for ages, I, I made a documentary about witchcraft in Tanzan Tanzania. And I badgered the African service for about six months. And then I sort of got this weird phone call from the then boss of the African service who said, do you want to go to Madagascar? And that's all he said. And I said, yes. And I, hard, I hardly knew where it was. Um, and people always sort of confuse it with Mauritius and Zanzibar. But anyway, I headed off there and then the sort of rest is history. I mean, I, I wasn't one of the, I wasn't a John Simpson or anything, but I, I, I was lucky. I had a year in Madagascar, then I had a year in Cape Town. And at that time, South Africa was going through a big sort of transition. And I mean, it had already moved to democracy, but it was the end of the Mandela era. It was the Tabo and Becky era. It was going through a lot of change itself. And then a few years after that, I, again, I was lucky enough to um, be successful in securing a posting to Morocco. So I felt I'd gone from different extremes, uh, you know, very far south um, to, to the very far north. In fact, I have been to both the most southerly point and most northerly point of the continent. So, As correspondent. <laughs> yes, in fact, yeah. I, I just seem to get stuck in Eastern Europe every well, single yeah. time, <laughs> even though I <laughs> the, tried to get the them to, set, to, to let me go to Kampala and Addis yeah, Ababa, well, but... Ended up in Sarajevo. Crumbles. Yes, yes, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Never mind. And when you're in, um, it, the funny thing it was, I remember putting together a documentary when I was in Georgia about wine, and it was all under this uh, idea of doing three radio uh, documentaries. One of them, and and all three of them were under the broad title "Fading Traditions." And I remember thinking, I wonder who else did did these. And of course, I listened through to my own, was very proud. And then I listened through to your one. I thought, this is really, really good work. I've been trying to work out what's happened to Richard over the last <laughs> couple of years. So it was, a, it was a lovely way to stay in touch. How did you come across this? Sorry, the the storytellers. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, I, I, I when I arrived in, in Rabat, because that was the posting that I, that I was at. Sorry, that was the city that I was at. Um, 
I actually was invited to a party by some Spanish um, expats and there was correspondents and NGO workers and all sorts of cameramen and and I got talking to this guy who was a website designer and I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm designing a website for UNESCO. What they want to do is save the stories from Marrakesh. They want to save the oral tradition. They want to put it on the website. And I thought, gosh, that's... Um, I had heard of the storytellers vaguely in the same way that, you know, if, if you're looking through The Lonely Planet or The Rough Guide, you might have come across a few lines. Um, but basically, as, as a sort of journalist, I thought that's a good peg to get into the story because I know that people had done it before. They'd done the sort of, oh, the fading tradition of the storytellers, which was very important. But I thought the fact that UNESCO um, was preserving the stories would be a great peg. Mm-hmm. And I also thought it was wonderful because people had always been saying that um, the tradition was dying out because of modern technology, that um, mm-hmm. people, because they watch television and use the internet and uh, play computer games, that they're no longer interested in listening to this rather traditional, mm-hmm. old-fashioned, if you like, way of, of hearing a story, just for somebody to sit in, in the middle of the square and people to gather around and listen. Um, so I thought it had almost come full circle that modern technology could possibly be the saviour mm-hmm. of, of the stories. Um, but as it turned out, in the end, that, that UNESCO project fell away and they handed it over to the Moroccan authorities. And as far as I know, they haven't progressed with it. Mm. So uh, that so was... So thank goodness for your book. Well, I, I hope so. I hope that I've done something to, to preserve the tradition because even if we can't keep these people, these, these men physically alive, we can keep their collective memory alive. Mm. Now in the book, in fact, just a, a few minutes ago, you were talking about it being something that goes back a, as far into the history as the beginnings of Marrakesh or whatever, a thousand years ago. But this storytelling thing, it's part of humanity far deeper. It goes back to the dawn of humanity. And basically, this over the centuries has, has evolved into it, it actually almost becoming a, a profession. And you have a storyteller, and they occupy a particular position in society, a, you know, a pre-literate society. They're the ones that, that hang things together generation after generation. Exactly. They, they think that some of the oldest cave paintings date around back to, to uh, 25,000 BC, 200, sorry, yeah, 25,000 years old or 27,000 years old. Uh, so they think that that's, as, you know, those are the earliest records of storytelling and that language probably emerged maybe 50,000 years ago. So um, storytelling may be older than that. People must have sat around campfires and entertained themselves or said to each other, oh, I was out hunting over those mountains and I came across some terrible animals. Whatever you do, avoid that part of, of where we live. You know, and of so course that, that evolved into you should have seen the size of that bear that I came across <laughs> and I almost so, had it. Exactly. Uh, one, um, one writer said that he thought that storytelling might have evolved as a form of excuse for failure. You know, when the, <laughs> the hunter came back to his family, he had to justify why he didn't come back with some good meat. You know, so he came up with a very elaborate story. Um, And then it's thought that uh, storytelling became a profession in the Middle East, uh, in Mesopotamia, and in something like the 8th century. Um, So, and then, of course, the most famous collection of stories are A Thousand and One Nights, and they're thought to date back to around the 9th century. And what's lovely about the Moroccan tradition is it's been one of the most enduring uh, traditions, and uh, in the the Middle East, while other countries have, have seen... Uh, the loss of its storytellers. Um, up until now, really, um, it's continued in Morocco. It, it was in other parts of the country as well. You, you would go and see storytellers in Tangier and Meknes and Fez, particularly Fez's 
one of the oldest of the imperial cities that had one of the strongest um, sort of centers for storytelling. And then it gradually faded out. And then Marrakesh, partly, I think, because tourists used to, tourists always visited there, that would be why it sort of survived so long. But I know that, for example, in Damascus, there's still a storyteller who performs slightly again for tourists in a cafe. Um, and that's uh, you know, one of the few incidents of, of storytelling carrying on. But this is why it's so valuable. We're not just talking about Morocco. We're talking about professional storytelling uh, being lost uh, to the world. And, of course, people may still tell stories in their families and you know, in the remotest villages in, in the Amazon or whatever. But, but it's, in terms of a profession, you know, it, it's really on its last legs. Mm. And it was part of a, an informal education system as well. And, of, of course, that's starting to be replaced as modernity creeps. That's right. Uh, Morocco has made a big push towards um, improving its literacy rates because at independence there was something like 20% of the country was literate, could read and write. And so because of that, the storyteller had a very important role. He would be going around telling people, it's like a sort of newspaper in a way, or a radio service. He would say what was going on, and he would travel around the country and go from marketplace to marketplace and tell people what was going on. And, um, and also, the, a lot of the tales have um, educational value, as you say. They're morality tales. Normally, the good guy wins... The, the baddie doesn't, uh, but there's a long, convoluted, twisting plot in between. So it's not they're not quite as simplistic as that. Yeah, but we'll, we'll look it, at a couple uh, yeah. a, bit, a bit later on. Yeah. And what struck me about certainly one of them, one of the ones that we're going to look at, was its complexity. But uh, anyway, uh, getting back to uh, Marrakesh, the setting of them, it seems very, very bound up, the whole storytelling tradition, with this extraordinary place at the centre of Marrakesh. And I've been through Morocco a couple of times, and uh, in Marrakesh, at the centre of it, there's, there's a, an enormous uh, space called the Jamar El Fnar. You, you actually describe it as a, a giant plug hole and a throbbing mass of humanity there. And it, it basically is, it, it's the soul of the city laid bare. You, 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 can, you can watch uh, snake charmers, you can have things to eat, you can of course read stories. Can you tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this throbbing mass of humanity, this, this plug hole? Yes, well, I think that's why it's such a rich um, sort of melting pot, if you like, and why the stories are so rich, because it's the scholars who've looked at these stories say that they show the different influences that, that have travelled across Africa. So you've got sub-Saharan African culture melding in there with uh, Berber stories from North Africa, and then you've got Arabic stories from the Middle East, such as A Thousand and One Nights. So you've got this great mixing uh, melting pot. And this is uh, it's thought that when Marrakesh was founded, it really was a point in the desert between these trade routes. And people would bring salt up from the Sahara or they would bring fine um, spices and things across to the coast. So it really was a, a, a meeting point for different cultures. And it's really always been that way today. And it, it might be a little bit more sort of weird and wonderful. And it, it saw a... A sort of hippie psychedelic phase in the 60s and 70s as well but um, that's basically why it's so so interesting I think and it's so rich in its vibrancy and to begin to describe it it's just it's almost uh, for, for Londoners I suppose Covent Garden would be the nearest thing but it's much more wild and and weird and, and wonderful than that because in a way it's a religious place there's a big mosque called the Ketubia and it's sort of been regarded by scholars as a sacred space but it's also a place of entertainment and there's as you say there's there's fire eaters acrobats 
um, dentists, um, people selling weird herbs that will do anything. You know, they'll get your w wife to fall in love with you again or whatever. So, the, the, sorry, the dentists bit. Sorry, I have to stop you. I've seen some strange-looking teeth on display, and uh, that people will sell you false teeth, or they'll come and say uh, they'll have a little stall, and they'll say we'll we'll fix your teeth. I mean, you can do you, almost anything is possible. Uh, there's, there's a Moroccan proverb that uh, that says anything is possible, but nothing is certain. And I think the Jamar al-Fanar epitomizes that expression. It's sort of randomness, and I've never felt more alive. Actually, the name of Jamar al-Fanar, they think it means the place of the dead, but actually I've never felt more alive in, in the Jamar al-Fanar. It's, it's just, um, there's nothing quite like it, so you can't, it's difficult to compare. And, and to say it's a bit like Covent Garden is probably doing it a great disservice. Cause I think Garden... a massive disservice, yes. <laughs> I Just in the sense that people gather around street performers and yeah. you get that magnetism. And the more the crowd grows, the more fascinating it becomes. And you get that with the storytellers. Initially, they're just one guy with a couple of his friends and the circle gradually increases. And in the old days, it was almost like the Olympic symbol. You'd have sort of seven overlapping circles, you know. Yes. In, and so, and they're all competing with each other, and there would be a lot of noise. And and now, as I say, it's, you'd be very lucky to see one at all. Right. And and another thing that you point out is that sometimes they string in the in the fashion of the one thousand and one night uh, Arabian Nights. It's uh, something that they often string out over several nights, so that they they you know you have to keep coming back for more. It's like episodes of a, a of a soap opera or something like that. I remember on Saturday mornings when you had those black and white things that uh, were on TV, and it always ends on a cliffhanger. Exactly, so you've got to yeah. switch on the next day. Exactly, yeah. Well, I think uh, it's not so much anymore, but in, in uh, a long time ago, people, the, the, they were real scholars, these storytellers. They were sort of religious men of learning, even though they had very little material wealth. In fact, none. They were regarded as beggars. Um, but they had incredible memories. And again, in an oral society where most people can't read and write, memory is a very important thing. And I think we've lost that now because we can all sort of think, oh, I'll just Google that. I'm not sure what, what the facts are. But people had incredible memories. And these storytellers were known to st tell uh, ancient Islamic um, texts and that would last, the story might go on for a year, and people would come back every night for a year. Mm -hmm. And to, to the, that amazes me because the, the thought of that nowadays, we don't have the concentration for that. We all live in sound bites and, you know, something that, you know, a news report is three minutes long or even three minutes is regarded as long. So um, there really was a sense of taking time and enjoying the stories unfold. And then, yes, the, the expert storyteller would make sure that he finishes on a moment of suspense, a cliffhanger, and that people would come back the next day. Mm. But the thought of... I mean, people sort of groan at the thought of sort of sitting through a Wagner opera, but the thought of <laughs> sitting through a year's story uh, of some ancient Islamic uh, text is, is amazing. And I think that's maybe it says more about our society that we've lost that sense of concentration. Yeah, I, I think it's quite remarkable that, that you've managed to get such a, um, a selection down here. Do you think that... that sorry, there... there sorry. Do you know how many you've got in this book? They look as though there must be about uh, 25 or so, 30. Yeah, I think there's about 30. I think I okay. recorded nearly 50, and then I did a big right. editing process of thinking, well, which are the strongest? And there were an awful lot in which the hero ends up marrying the, the sultan's <laughs> daughter. And one of my, when I was sort of doing the editing process, one of my friends pointed this out, and I realised that that was a common theme. So I, I sort of 
trimmed uh, a few trimmed a few down because I didn't want them to all sound the same. But you do get a lot of variety. I mean, there's one about it's a creation myth about how the Sahara was created, and then you've got other ones about morality tales mm -hmm. and. Uh, I mean, we can discuss individual ones if, if you Absolutely. like. Absolutely. I'll just start off by uh, noting something that you write in the book, and that is that several Arabists have tried to classify the various stories that are, that are told. And they, the ones that you note are animal tales, ordinary folk tales, local legends, humorous narratives, and formula tales. Uh, let's kick off with the first one that you've got in your book, which is called The Red Lantern by Moulay Mohammed El Jabri. Uh, and this, you said, is a morality tale. Yes, I think that's the simplest way of seeing it, although it's also quite humorous and quite quirky. And I can just quickly go through the plot, which is fairly simple. There's a, a sweet seller who lives in Marrakesh, and he doesn't make any money, so he goes off to seek his fortune, and he goes um, travelling across the Atlas Mountains, and he comes across a kingdom that's never been heard of before. And he gets, as, as the Islamic way is, when, when a traveller comes through, it's very important that, that, that hospitality is, a, that, that they have three days of being treated as a guest and showered with, with every uh, feast and all the rest of it. And this is what happens to this traveller. And then at the end of the day, he's rather embarrassed because he doesn't know what to give in return. He's been showered with all his gifts. He comes to this And it's a wealthy fabulously wealthy kingdom. place. That's yeah. right, yes. And the king there showers him with you know, vaults full of gold and all the rest of it. And this poor, lowly sweet seller doesn't know what to do. And the only possession that he'd brought with him was a red lantern. And if you go to Marrakesh, they still make these little lanterns made out of tin. They've become fashionable in, in Europe, but, you know, if people for Moroccan interior decor, you know, in fact, I've got yeah, one. My, got wife one in my... And my wife has one. I, I hate the bloody <laughs> oh, thing. All right. Well, we've got one in our hallway and they give off a nice light, but they've become slightly sort of kitsch over the years. But anyway, so even, you know, hundreds of years ago uh, they were making these lanterns and they would have a candle in them you know before electricity and um, they were to a penny in Marrakesh and this sweet seller that was his only possession and he takes that on his journey and uh, so he offers this king the red lantern and the king has never seen glass before and he looks at it in complete wonder and doesn't know how he could possibly repay how he could give enough gifts to to warrant this this wonderful present of the Red Lantern. So he orders his his uh, guards to unlock all the vaults and give the greatest treasures he's got and there's sort of rooms full of diamonds and gold and silver and emeralds and rubies and all the rest of it. And then the the um, the sweet seller goes home and becomes enjoys the trappings of his wealth and then he's got um, uh, a, an older or a young, uh, sorry, he's got a brother who's slightly less honest who thinks well I'll you know, I'm rather jealous of my brother, I'll try it. And he goes off, he takes camel loads of wealth from Marrakesh and goes off to find the same king. And Reasoning the, that if, if his brother just yes. had to hand over a lantern, he got all of that. Exactly. If he then, can basically spend as much money yes. on, as possible on, on wealth, hand yeah. that over, yeah. he'll multiply exactly. his stuff by even more. Exactly. And the, the king, but it doesn't quite work out so well for the brother because um, he doesn't have the red lantern, um, and oh, he gets robbed on the way. That's a as crucial you would do point. If yeah, with all that money, going even nowadays, you might be in trouble going over the Atlas Mountains through these little villages. And um, so the brother gets robbed. He has nothing. When he turns up at this king's palace again, all he has is a watch. And the the kings, luckily, they haven't seen a watch either. And they, so they give him 
uh, but the the king doesn't have anything left because he's emptied all his vaults from, mm. the, pre- from the previous brother. <laughs> his brother's so, already yeah, got that. So, so he didn't know what to give the, the, the greedy brother. So he sort of scratches his head and eventually decides, well, I'll have to give it up. And he gives him the red lantern. Being uh, the most valuable thing most that this sultan thing. believes he yeah. has. And so it's a morality tale. I think it works on lots of levels because friends of mine who've got children say they love it because it's a quirky story. It's slightly unexpected and it's quite funny. Um, but it's and, and also you know the honest good person does well and, and the scheming one doesn't. He gets his comeuppance. But um, what also is nice about it is it tells something about the sort of arbitrariness of what we as humans value. You know how would we know? Uh, you know thousands of years ago that gold was going to be the precious metal that everybody wanted. You know or why do we all value technology now or, or you know, mm-hmm. how, how, what do you put a price on things? And, and, and things are unexpected. What we value uh, doesn't always turn out to be what other people value. So that's what I like about that story. I thought it was a cracking beginning to the book because, it, as you say, quirky, interesting, different, and, you know, it works on several levels. Um, one other story that we can look at now is a, a version of, of the Cinderella tale. Uh, And this was the one that I was suggesting a bit earlier on was actually quite a no, this wasn't the most complicated one, but this one still had quite quite a few levels to it. This is uh, and you might have to help me with the pronunciation. Aisha Ramada, is that That, the name of it? And this this is uh, this was told to you by Mustafa Karl Layoun. And this basically comes across as a bit of a Cinderella tale, you know, uh, uh, a poor but attractive uh, girl is kept down by jealous relatives uh, but eventually the sultan finds her and, you know, marries her, etc., etc. But I really like the particularly grisly ending, which we need to, <laughs> we need to touch on because I've never come across this in, the, uh, in, in what in this culture here in Western Europe would be a, a children's tale. Exactly. I mean, uh, this, I was slightly concerned as to whether I could market this book as a children's book because um, it's a, it has a rather grisly end. And I might as well go straight to the end because although it's a fairy tale, really, and it works out very well for the young girl, she marries the um, the, the prince. As we'd all hoped. As we yes, were we'd it. all hoped that it would work out. And the evil stepmother um, doesn't succeed and her ugly... Uh, daughters don't either and it is almost exactly the same as Cinderella and scholars say there are something like a hundred different versions around the world of Cinderella you know in India uh, the Far East uh, South America the Cinderella tale turns up almost word for word and that's a remarkable thing and scholars don't quite know why that is and there's some theories as that it's because it's the stories have migrated you know, as people travelled around the world, if, if, for example, stories came out of Africa, if humanity came out of Africa, then then uh, the, the man's oral knowledge would go with those migration patterns. Although uh, in Morocco's case, it looks as if stories came migrated from the Middle East. Um, but also, that, you know, North Africa was conquered by the Romans, so European traditions would have mm. spread that. So it's, it's fascinating how... T- to try and work out how did these stories all turn up almost identically in different parts of the world. Um, but there are different twists. And there is another story, um, a Berber story called Blilija. And um, somebody told me that that's identical to the Rapunzel story where the girl oh, right. dang- dangles her hair down uh, and the prince climbs up the hair. Except in that one, there were specific cultural references such as polygamy, which you don't get in the European. I think mm. it's the Brothers Grimm that wrote the, the German version. Um, so, in terms of how how did this story these stories all crop crop up in different parts of the world? 
Um, there's that migration theory, and then there's other more sort of psychological theories that that uh, Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious, mm-hmm. and an anthropologist Lucien Levy Bruhl talked about collective representations, and both of their theories are that the human mind works in certain set patterns and that has certain ways that group mental grooves in which the mind works, and so stories will follow those essential patterns, and that that's why we're all thinking the same things. And so, so one of the nice things about this book is it sort of unites our common humanity. These aren't really just Moroccan stories. They're stories, they have connections to all over mm. the world. But as I say, there's a twist at the end. Uh, <laughs> a twist? More, more than a twist. Um, the, the Aisha Ramada, she... she um, just, just read out that final yes, okay, bit. The final, yes, it, I thoroughly enjoyed this. Okay, so she, she, this time it says Aisha was not so merciful. She instructed the palace servants to behead the stepsister, chop up the rest of the young woman's body into tiny little pieces, and then leave these morsels to dry in the hot Moroccan sun. When the meat was properly cured, Aisha placed the head carefully in a sack and concealed it with the scraps of meat. She sent the sack sack to her stepmother and when the sorceress that because the stepmother was a sorceress when she opened the sack she thought this must be a present from her daughter and zora that's the name of the stepmother she greedily ate all the dried meat but when her hands reached the bottom of the sack she was horrified to find her daughter's severed head realizing she had actually eaten her own daughter the ugly the ugly woman died from her anger and her rage so basically this is cinderella but at the end of it cinderella turns her rival into biltong basically <laughs> exactly and maybe maybe a bit more research needs to be done into that ending but maybe um, because it's an old story and you know people in the desert are not you know maybe they're they don't bother observing some of the social niceties and revenge you know, is 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 not necessarily served cold. It's mm. it's, it's served hot and bloody and uh, gory. And and let's be completely fair to this Cinderella character. All the way through this, she is particularly nice. And yes. even when she is severely wronged and at one point thrown down a well, she still retains a, a good element of character. So I suppose that that there's another moral there, and that's that even really lovely girls who marry sultans can only be pushed so far. Exactly, and there's another story called the 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 vengeance of Allah, and that mm-hmm. also it's very much saying that God will will punish the evildoer. Um, but I mean, I'm not sure what why that this has a maybe it's just that our tastes have become a bit. You know, we're in modern society, we're more politically correct, and we don't approve of people eating each other's heads and things. But um, I don't know. I think maybe that children would have enjoyed this, or you know, in a society that wasn't. I wouldn't say primitive, but, you know, just enjoys a bit of blood and guts, mm. that this wouldn't have been such a shock to the, the sort Absolutely. of polite Western audience. Well, I mean, this is this is one for anyone who's listening. Um, there's a BBC series called In Our Time, which uh, is an excellent programme which looks at physics, history, all sorts of things in the past literature. Um, and if you go to the In Our Time bit of the BBC website, you'll find that they did a programme about the Brothers Grimm. And what's fascinating there, come to think of it, Now that we're talking about this being such a bloodthirsty story, a lot of the original versions of the Brothers Grimm fairy tales were absolutely bloodthirsty. I mean, if you think how many little children are put in ovens by Mm. old women who live in houses made of uh, of fairy cakes and sweets, uh, I think that that that, that kind of level 
is around the world, but perhaps not in modern society. Um, each, each um, for example, with A Thousand and One Nights, there have been different translations, and the translators had put their own slant on it. So the, the Richard Burton translation is particularly keen on sex and brings that out. And then some Victorian translations sanitise them. Mm-hmm. And there's another story, I don't know if we've got a chance to talk about it, but it's called The Girl from Fez. Girl from Fez, page 199, if it was just after that one. Yes, and that's uh, what's interesting about that is it, it's, it has a slightly anti-Semitic uh, side in that the evil person is a Jewish guy that wants to marry uh, an, a Muslim woman, and he tries to convert her to Judaism. Well, he um, kidnaps her he kidnaps when she's her, a young girl. He, exactly, and then he brings her up exclusively as a Jewish girl. But in the end, the plan doesn't work, and, and the girl escapes and finds her true love and renounces Judaism. And again, um, a sort of more politically correct audience might find that a bit uncomfortable. But again, these stories go back hundreds of years, and in Morocco, there, there has been problems between... Although it's a fairly tolerant society... Um, there, there was a Jewish minority that escaped from Spain, and then, you know, when Israel was created, a lot of them went back there. But they've they've met with a lot of anti-Semitism, and even now, uh, I've come across very educated Moroccans that suddenly say something like, "Well, I don't believe the Holocaust existed," or something. So, suddenly, I've come across extraordinary opinions. So, this girl from Fez, the baddie, is definitely. Um, the Jewish guy, and but I still thought it's important to include that because I didn't want to sanitize these stories. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to make them just too bland. I thought, you know, I'm going to be truthful to them. Um, but there were some other stories that that in the end I didn't put in, but that were they were quite misogynistic as well. So that's another, you know, the stories aren't necessarily all sweetness and light. Basically, they they have mm. they have nasty sides to them. But um, I but, think it's important to reflect that. And of course, that idea that that you're putting all of the shades of stories in here and not just the sort of sanitized versions uh, really reflects the fact that this is something that it's 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 rooted in Moroccan society. Uh, and one thing I was picking up earlier, and we can stay on this uh, on this particular story, the girl from Fez, is that some of them are very, very complex. I mean, you, you've outlined the plot about this, uh, this Jewish gentleman who kidnaps this young Muslim girl and then brings her up, actually locked away so that then she she loses all memory of who she used to be. But there's also an extremely intricate but important subplot going on at the same time about a robber. And then it all kind of feeds together. Is this the type of thing that uh, would have been told perhaps in one go? Or did you get the impression that this was a kind of multi-night extravaganza? Well, this is one of the longer ones. I mean, some of these stories are only a, a page long or in terms of timing, maybe 10 minutes. And then there's some others that are sort of... 20 pages long, and, and it's difficult to say whether this girl from Fez... I mean, it's slightly longer. It might be a sort of two-parter. But what I liked about it was it sets up, as you say, this story about the Jewish uh, guy who, who kidnaps the young Muslim girl. And then the storyteller... I'll just quote this bit. He says... This, so this, you get a sense of, of what it's like to listen. He says, uh, Now let us leave the couple on their wedding day and go to another part of the city... At that time, there was a thief called Gozian Lyle. He was no ordinary robber and did not just steal any old thing he could get his hands on. No, he was an expert thief, and he was so skillful that he only stole once a year. But when he did so, he always took something so valuable that he could live off its proceeds for the rest of the year. And then we go into this this subplot. And what I like about it is it's quite cinematic. You've sort of... You're following um, 
this story and then you're almost jumping across the rooftops to another part of the city and I like that. I could almost imagine a, a Spielberg doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what a good storyteller does. He, he uses, he it ignites people's imagination so that they've got a picture in their head and um, in fact, when I was interviewing the, the guy that told me this, uh, Abdel Rahim El Maquiri, he told me that uh, he did talk about uh, leaving stories on a cliffhanger, but he also talked about how people in the audience would sort of move around. If, if for example, he said the hero draws his sword, then people would duck in the audience, that people would actually um, physically duck their heads, even though there was no sword, you know, he didn't have any props, you know. So that shows you how how powerful it is as a visual image that, um, as I say, it's quite cinematic, that we're sort of moving to a different part of... But um, anyway, the, the, the two threads sort of tie together because the thief re-kidnaps the girl from the Jewish trader. So you get a sort of story within a story and a, a robbery or a kidnapping within a kidnapping, and then they sort of are tied together at the end. And then there's a nice irony. I mean, I don't know whether I should give away the plot, but <laughs> the, 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 the evil Jewish uh, merchant, he gets locked away, and they say to him, that the ruler, the good ruler of Fez says to him, now you shall see what it feels like to be held against your wishes. So there's a nice uh, circular, we're coming back to this theme of kidnapping at the end. So I wouldn't say they're, they're really complicated stories, and some are simple, more simple than others, but um, this one's got a nice subplot, as you say. Absolutely. One thing that I like about the way that you've portrayed all of all of this is that you you've tied Morocco to not just the the you know Arabian Nights, uh, but also to it, its position geographically in Africa. Obviously, with the the Jewish side of things, you're you're dealing with the uh, expulsion of the Jews from uh, from Spain, but you're also talking about the trade routes and how that has affected it. Its position next to the Atlas Mountains on the on the northern edge of the Sahara. One thing I did wonder, uh, and I've wondered this for a while, Richard. I've never asked you, but especially because you had this uh, you know this background in the southern edge of, of, of Africa. Did you feel when you were in Morocco that you were still very much in an African country or, or, or did it really feel as though you were stepping into a completely different type of country, you know, Middle Eastern, North African? Yes, it felt more Middle Eastern to me. Um, in fact, some of the countries I've been to, like Madagascar, felt more Asian than African and then Moroccan in its own way. I don't know if I like, if it just worked out that way or if it appeals to me, but I like countries that are on the periphery and they're on a, a borderline, they're on the edge, they're sort of frontier societies almost. And they're not, and the Cape Town was like that. It was like this little bit of Europe stuck, mm. patched onto the end of Africa in a weird way. Um, uh, but, but anyway, uh, Morocco, it's North African and it's Middle Eastern. But what I felt when I first arrived in Marrakesh was that, that I was travelling back in time and that I remember me and my wife were looking for the Riyadh that we'd booked when we first went to Marrakesh and we were wandering around these alleys and there was a sort of donkey cart going past and then you know just a candle light lighting up a vegetable stall and it felt like Joseph and Mary looking for the manger it was um, it felt like we'd gone back 2000 years it felt although Marrakesh is a touristy place um, when you wander down the streets uh, especially at night, um, or you go to the square at night, it feels as if you're going back in time, and I think that's what appealed to me. And, and nowadays, people can travel to to Marrakesh from Gatwick or Luton or whatever. They can get an EasyJet flight or a Ryanair flight, and in three and a half hours, they're suddenly in a different world and almost a different century. You know, mm. that's what appealed to me. I mean, it's a very rich um, 
Muslim country. Is you know, the architecture's got the Moorish architecture. It's exotic. It's got the spices, the interior decor, you know, the lanterns. <laughs> uh, but also, it just uh, something. I think that's what captivated me. It was just so exotic, and yet it's very near Europe. Mm. And you can, you know, if you're if you're in Tangier, you can see the Straits of Gibraltar, and if you're in uh, Marrakesh, you can see the Atlas Mountains. So you get extremes of geography. And and interestingly enough, there was an anthropologist that went and recorded some stories from the Berbers in the Atlas Mountains. But a lot of those stories are quite crude, and they're sort of ones about camels, testicles, things like that. And I did come across some of those stories, but I just felt, although I'm all in favour of not sanitising stories, I just felt that they, they didn't have enough of a sort of plot. But um, So people have made attempts to record stories, and um, it shows you how rich the Moroccan tradition is, that on the one hand you've got, you've got Middle East, and then you've got Sub-Saharan, and then you've got Berber, which is pre-Arabic invasion of North Africa. So you've got wonderful cultures all mixing together and that's what Marrakesh does so successfully and mm -hmm. people that worry about will it change shouldn't really worry because it's that dynamism that keeps it alive and you know the hippies coming and going and the the rich westerners and the the expensive riads and things I don't think it ruins Marrakesh I just think it makes it more wonderful it just adds another uh, sort of side to the prism of it. Well, what I would normally ask at this stage is have you got a favorite place in Africa but you're, you're making a good case for Marrakesh I am. I mean, the first time I went there, I did find it um, a bit relentless, a bit full on. It was a bit of a culture shock, like everybody's always trying to sell well, you something. When I was there, I had food poisoning, so it right. certainly did feel relentless. Yeah, yeah. And um, you do get sort of boys saying to you, I'll show you to the museum or I'll show you to the square. And then, at the, of course, at the end of the trip, they say, can I have a few coins, you know. And it is a bit, it's a bit much, you know. It's a real culture shock. But the more I went back there, more, the more I loved it, because I sort of learnt how to avoid eye contact and how to sort of slip under the radar a bit. And um, I sort of saw, I think the stories brought the culture alive because if you only went to the square or if you only approached by, like there are these men that sell, uh, that, that have monkeys on their backs and they put the monkey on your back and that you, they ask to be photographed and things like that. And tourists find that a bit much, but if you sort of take the time, it's, it's a very rewarding place. Mm -hmm. um, but it's difficult to compare different countries in Africa but I suppose because it was the last place I went to it it's it's the memories are the most alive mm -hmm. so that's your favorite place in Africa I, I suppose I should plump for that it would be odd to to uh, talk about a book and then say but I prefer Madagascar I mean that you're be... allowed to if you wish <laughs> anyway Richard Hamilton thank you very much indeed thank you and that was my interview with Richard Hamilton the author of the last storytellers tales from the heart of Morocco this is Nicholas Walton from New Books in African Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London. <laughs>